0: Insights on Responsible Business is a podcast about organizations building trust, security and resilience to thrive in a new era of uncertainty and stakeholder capitalism. Our host is Sir Rob Wainwright, formerly Executive Director of Europol, Senior Partner of Deloitte with a career-long experience of navigating complex risk and security issues. He talks with business leaders and experts about their challenges and experiences in becoming more responsible businesses, towards an outcome that is better for all stakeholders, better for the long-term shareholder value, and better for society as a whole. Joining us is Steve Zimmerman, who joined the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, in July 2019 as the Director for the Office of Internal Audits and Investigations where he leads teams responsible for the organization's assurance and advisory services, as well as investigations into fraud, corruption, and misconduct across UNICEF's global operations. He's a lawyer by training, and before taking the role at UNICEF, Mr. Zimmerman was the senior advisor to the governance global practice of the World Bank, where he helped guide the bank's anti-corruption justice and rule of law work. Steve had a leading role in developing the World Bank's integrity agenda. Now, UNICEF works in over 190 countries and territories to save children's lives, to defend their rights and to help them fulfill their potential from early childhood through adolescence. Rob and Steve discussed the relationship between this incredibly challenging mission and the role of responsible business. Over to you both.
1: Well, great. Thank you, Rodney. And welcome back, listeners. And a warm welcome to you, Steve. So in this episode, we're turning to the world of UNICEF and the cause of helping the most vulnerable children in the world in the most challenging environments. Well, it doesn't get much more important than that. Steve, give me a sense uh, of the current scale and impact of this very important agency's work.
2: Well, uh, before COVID-19, the focus... UNICEF was already a a large, important, significant organization, and the recent events have already only made it more so. Uh, We anticipated a a spend in 2020 of around $7 billion uh, for assisting children around the world in difficult environments, and that money comes more or less evenly split from the public sector and the private sector, not actually from the United Nations, but we raise a lot of money through the private sector. Uh, And we receive a lot of very generous donations from governments. The work is really uh, incredibly important. We focus on nutrition, on education, on safe water, um, on a range of issues that involve children's rights. Since COVID, though, uh, COVID has really upped both the need for resources, and we've started a fundraising campaign. We're trying to raise another billion and a half dollars specifically for response to COVID and to respond to the knock-on effects of COVID-19. It's not just the the challenge of the COVID itself and finding a vaccine. It's what happens when a billion children are out of school uh, and they can't get school lunches? That actually leads to malnutrition. What happens when children are home and suddenly are forced into trial labor more frequently than they would have been in the past? Uh, and those are really the focuses now of, of UNICEF as we move forward and look at the impact of COVID-19 uh, on the rights of children and uh, the safety and health of children around
1: the world. So, in a a typical year, Steve, I mean, we'll come on to talk about the COVID experience, perhaps in a second. But in a typical year, you're helping roughly how many children, vulnerable children, in roughly how many countries? What's what's the sense of UNICEF's global coverage here?
2: Well, we are operating in just about every country of the world in one form or another, and I I think we probably have operations, uh, in other words, helping children in in more than 150 countries around the world. Uh, We're talking billions of children that could potentially be impacted one way or another from the work of UNICEF. Uh, we exist to go into the most challenging countries. You know, Our biggest programs are in countries where there are significant refugee populations, for example, Syria, Yemen, um, uh, South Sudan. Those are huge programs for UNICEF. Environments where other donor agencies, other aid agencies might be a little more hesitant to go in, uh, UNICEF is on the ground. Uh, so, we really pride ourselves on being close to the programs, close to the children to understand what the needs are and to make sure that we're getting what the kids need, what parents need uh what schools need to care for those children
1: i mean given the sort of importance of that goal and 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 the global coverage that you have and and that fact that you're in the most challenging environments, you know, deliberately choosing those for obvious reasons. The risks must be enormous, of course. Um, managing those operations, such a large investment, billions of dollars of funds, you know, getting that to the front line in you know the hardest places possible. I can imagine that's so tough. I mean, I, I, I could see from your bio, Steve, you're a former prosecutor, so you will have a good perspective on on the risks of, say, fraud and corruption, for example. And I just wondered, you know. How you said about dealing with them, how significant these risks are, even on the day-to-day basis of getting that money to where where it's needed in the right way.
2: Yeah, uh, obviously, given the environments that we work in, the risk of fraud and corruption and other types of misconduct is enormous. Uh, and it's not just fraud and corruption. Uh, we worry about sex exploitation and abuse of children. Uh, we worry about uh, the workers on the front lines and whether they're uh, they're taken care of. Um, so. But it's a huge challenge. These are the environments where often there are not fully developed justice systems or fully developed financial systems. So we're looking for alternative ways to protect the funds and ensure that our precious resources are used for the purposes intended. And we engage in all types of mechanisms to do so. We're we're beginning to leverage technology more and more to try and address fraud and corruption risks. Uh, We rely on the relationship with a a network of implementing partners uh, who we vet very carefully, but we rely on them to be the, you know, to essentially take the resources, at the last mile to actually deliver the vaccines. Um, and we rely on the business sector to help us. Uh, you know, we are uh, anxious to work with, as, as the podcast says, responsible business partners. When I, when I speak of responsible businesses, I use the word integrity. Um, I want to work with businesses and partners that are of the highest integrity and that understand the importance of what we're trying to do. And that every dollar lost may mean one less vaccine for a child. It may mean le- one less meal for a child. This has huge impact. Uh, so we're all in it together.
1: I mean, that's interesting, Steve, because you talk about, you know, managing risk in very different environments from the, the developed to developing world. I just wonder how you said about prioritizing those risks.
2: Well, there, I think the key is smart risk taking. Um, we can't eliminate risk. Uh, We, UNICEF, exists uh, because of risk. If the risks were not high, other organizations, other companies would be more than likely to come in and do business. So our focus is on identifying the risks, determining what are the most significant risks, uh, and what is the best way to address, to mitigate, to respond to those particular risks, and still get our operations completed. That's what smart risk-taking is all about. You can't let risk Freeze you. You can't let risks stop you from pursuing your objectives. You have to find a way to achieve your objectives while nonetheless addressing risk in the smartest, most efficient, most appropriate way.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. And in my experience, for example, in the banking sector where they're dealing multiple risks like like fraud uh, that we mentioned, and and, uh, and and I think there it is about a smart risk taking agenda. And I and I guess you're borrowing, for example, in your anti fraud work, you're borrowing some some of the best practice from from those industries. Is that right?
2: Of course, but sometimes it's hard to equate what might happen in the developed world with what you can put in place in the developing world. Um, You know, uh, fortunately for my career, there's corruption in just about every country of the world and we have not yet solved that problem and i don't think we will before i hit retirement age but the way we deal with corruption in the united states or england or france or japan is going to be very different than the way we're going to deal with these kinds of issues in yemen and south sudan uh, so it's a different kind of challenges but we are trying to bring some of the newest techniques uh biometrics for example biometrics could be a real game changer in the distribution of resources, because UNICEF is often distributing incredibly small sums of money. We make cash transfers. We will actually make small cash payments to individuals, to families, to make sure that they have food to feed their children. Um, Or we are delivering medicines. We need to make sure that the medicines get to the place that they're going. So biometrics is an area where we've actually been uh, using more and more. Um, But we don't have a banking system. It's not as if we can put the money in a bank account. So we're going to use different types of mobile financing technologies where we can use SMSs to confirm the receipt of money. We can use digital cards to, to actually transfer the money. And now we even started using drones to deliver certain supplies to hard-to-reach places. And all I hope is that we actually can use drones to begin to do a little bit of assurance work as well. So using technologies... But with a perhaps a smaller vista, a small number or a large number of very small transactions, as opposed to looking at sort of the larger transactions that we might expect to see in uh, in more developed countries. But the technologies and the logic and the mecha- a lot
1: of the mechanisms translate quite well. It's fascinating listening to you. It really is. I mean, turning to COVID, you, you mentioned that earlier. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking you know, at a time of, of, of COVID, and and you talk about in, in integrity of the work that you do. What comes to mind for me is the sort of transparency of the supply chain. You have long, complex supply chains all the way down to giving that small amount of money to put it on in, in a family somewhere, and that is a challenge for all the industries as well. Have you have you seen the complexity of that supply chain of either getting funds or material? As, you know, has has that been a major factor in your COVID experience?
2: Yeah, the supply chain is, is, is a huge issue. Um, let me give you an example, uh, even before COVID, of what I consider to be one of our more interesting projects when I learned of it. We have a program called School in a Box. Uh, what School in a Box means is that we collect from a different number of suppliers what we consider to be the essential tools for a school. Uh, and the target here is a community where there is no school available either because of disaster uh, or simply because of an absence of resources or whatever the reason might be. And we put together a box, literally a box, a big box, you know, maybe four feet by four feet that has whatever a teacher would need to run a school for a certain period of time. A blow up globe, books, pencils, uh, instruction materials. All those materials come from all over the world. So we have a huge supply chain just to bring those materials together. They come into our warehouse in Copenhagen, which is among the largest development warehouses in the world. It's assembled into a box. And then we have our teams on the ground identifying what are the communities that need these best. But it all begins with a supply chain. And this is fairly straightforward stuff. Uh, Who can supply us pencils at a reasonable cost? Uh, Where can we get maps at a reasonable cost? But the supply chain becomes critical you take that up a level to vaccines. We are the largest consumer of vaccines in the world, largest purchaser of vaccines. So we rely heavily on the supply chain for different vaccines, a range of vaccines, let alone until we get to COVID. These become huge challenges. And the supply chain was truly tested when COVID-19 arrived. And now we, UNICEF, along with the rest of the world, were suddenly in the market for PPEs. Uh, And the supply chain for PPEs, for masks, for gowns, suddenly became very, very challenging. Uh, we've overcome that now, but in the early days, that was a huge challenge for us. Uh, and we rely sometimes on the good graces of our suppliers uh, to stick with us, prov- make sure that we have access to goods that might be in high demand and make sure we have access at a reasonable cost uh, because our resources are still quite limited.
1: I mean, I, of course, the, the, the supply of PPE and not just to the developing world became a major feature in our new cycle as well. Uh, during the COVID experience. Um, what lessons did you learn, Steve? I mean, you know, you're used to, to to managing, navigating very complex supply chains. You too were hit with a similar challenge over PPE. Did you learn something about, you know, how how we, we, we could and should have done this better? I mean, not just in UNICEF, but, but more at large.
2: I, I don't think, it, it's hard to be in a position to prepare for what we just went through or what we are going through. Um, I think it, it underscored the importance of developing those relationships in the supply chain and understanding where their different pieces come and developing commitments uh, to provide certain items. Uh, and at the end of the day, the market forces take over. Um, and UNICEF is ultimately buffeted a bit by the market forces and the notion, and this is where I, you know it's an interesting juxtaposition between responsible business and business. We're trying to buy PPEs so that we can station them in the poorest parts of the world, because the concern is when COVID gets there and it's gotten to some in Latin America, perhaps worse than in others in Africa, for example, but when it arrives, it's gonna arrive in force uh, and we're not gonna have time to go back out shopping for PPE. So we need them, we need them now, Uh, we need them quickly and we need them cheaply. Um, But the business forces are not necessarily set up to supply them to us, Uh, the supply chain Goes where the the business is, and often where the largest profit is, uh, and so trying to find a way to balance the willingness of business to set aside for what might be a somewhat less profitable, but hopefully a bit more responsible client, uh, as opposed to others, is is a big challenge, um, and I think it underscores the importance of developing setting up and nurturing these supply chains in good times to prepare us for the more challenging.
1: Yeah, and I guess, you know, to to make sure that we we have those optimum arrangements, you know, it depends also on our having the visibility of supply chains, the rest of our business, and having the ability, of course, to check the efficiency of those, which takes us into, you know, the world of having an effective audit regime, which is, you know, one of your areas of responsibilities in, in, in UNICEF, of course, and again, I guess the COVID experience or at least the, the global work from home experience has made the business of running at least a conventional audit um you know much more challenging I guess for you. How I mean are you seeing that? How are you responding to it where where it's so important to audit, of course, these complex complex supply chains and yet you're having to do it in, in, in a much more challenging way now?
2: Yeah, I and mean, part of the challenge with the supply chains too, and it ties into audit is it's 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 layer after layer. You know, we may have the relationship with the front end, but we're relying on a supply chain at times that may not is not in our control. And there are even, let me take vaccines. One of the big issues with vaccines now is the vial. Uh, in other words, even where we, even now we are, you know, we purchase huge numbers of polio vaccines, but we know that we need a certain number of glass vials to hold those polio vaccines. Uh, and if our manufacturer of vaccines does not have access to those vials or there is some bad relationship or there is some integrity issue with the supply of the vials that we're downstream are going to be the ones to suffer. When we're auditing, um, or we're looking for those things, but that's very challenging. Uh, so our auditing is, is looking at things in a couple different areas, right? We're looking at the business relationships that provide us with, this, with the materials that we're distributing, the things that go into the school, the box, the, the vaccines, the, uh, the foods. But then we're also auditing at the field level, and that's really where actually our primary audit focus is. Our primary audit focus has been to make sure um, that our country offices are actually fulfilling their obligations to get the materials, the last mile to the children in the towns, in the villages, uh, in in the cities of the countries where we operate. That has always been challenging. It is hard to audit in the countries where we operate for the same reason we talked about the risks of fraud and corruption. it usually means going to the city going on the ground and our auditors and our investigators spend a lot of time on airplanes going out and actually looking and touching and feeling to try and get the level of assurance that we need to make sure uh that we're adequately addressing and mitigating risk that's all calm uh, no one's getting on airplanes right now so we've had to completely rethink how we get to a level of assurance that we believe is adequate and appropriate for what we're trying to do how we Feel that we have done enough to mitigate the inherent risk in the world where we operate. That means working remotely. Uh, that means relying on digital information. That means relying on Zoom. When um, it has challenges, you never occur. Like suddenly, time zones become hugely challenging. We never. No one thinks twice at UNICEF about hopping on a plane and saying, "I need to be in Bangkok on Thursday." That, that's just the way it is. Um, Now I have someone in New York who is trying to get on a phone call with someone in Bangkok with a 12 hour time difference and each one has their own personal problems trying to deal with a global pandemic. Personal issues become actually far greater impact on our ability to get some of our assurance work done. And the personal issues have to come first.
1: Yeah, of course. And, and I suppose you're mentioning they're also relying more on digital. Um, another example of what you were indicating earlier, you're turning more and more to technology, I guess, technology solutions. Um, putting that in the context of, of the business sector, um, as you say, this podcast series is about responsible business, about encouraging maybe or at least recognizing there's a new shift in the business community to operating in a different way, helping society where they most need it. Um, So, for example, in the case of UNICEF, what kind of support are you getting either in the technology field or somewhere or or another area? Are are you getting the kind of support from the business sector that you need?
2: Um, I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface there. So, and we focus just just on the use of technology to audit. We really get into sort of two broad but interlinked areas. I mean, sort of digital analytics uh, and using analytics to really detect risk. And there I I think we are making strides, but we have a long way to go to catch up with the private sector and we need help catching up. Uh, the Part of the challenge with digital analytics is it relies, the foundation of digital analytics is essentially digitization. In other words, digital analytics only works if you have digitized information to look at. It's not that helpful if your information that you're trying to analyze are boxes of handwritten receipts in a foreign language, or, you know, a language other than the language by which we're analyzing. And that's another problem that we have. Um, we work in countries that are still very paper driven so this gets to some very fundamentals we need to digitize in order to analyze uh and there again there is huge opportunity the private sector is way ahead of us in that area uh you know i we have i have worked with companies that are, are have do amazing things even in the ability to use artificial intelligence to analyze written paper it's not just scanning and ocr anymore We're we'll be on that but that's an area where we really need to need to we need to get
1: going are these companies sharing that that technology that that advice with you steve is that is that happening i'm just interested in 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 whether or not you're seeing an uptick generally in the appetite at least of the business community to help you know a cause such as unicef's
2: yeah i can't say i've seen interest sharing uh when we get down to costing i think we maybe get generous costing but it you know the challenge for us, you know, what would be a small expense for a private company could be a huge is is a huge number for UNICEF. So the ability for us to throw money at problems like this were very limited. You know, if anything, UNICEF now, even you know, we have seven billion, we're raising another billion and a half. But the money is is to buy vaccines. It's uh, not primarily to buy digital analytic tools. So we we are working with some private folks. We're starting to scratch the surface. We're trying to build our own in-house knowledge. Um, but it's we're in a little bit of a race here because we we this has become critical to our ability to satisfy our uh, our obligation to provide assurance
1: well listen I'm not in the habit, habit of allowing you know our guests to to overtly plug their work um, but most of our guests are from the commercial debate I think UNICEF gets a special pass at that Steve so you know, well, it, I was trying
2: to do that politely, but well, you know, I'm going
1: uh, to so. call it out here because uh, you, you know it's such an important mission. I, I think it's absolutely right that, that we encourage the business community to help. Um, you know, there will be business leaders in different areas listening to this. I mean, what do you most need from from the business community right now?
2: Oh my God, where do we start? Okay, so we start at the macro. We need money. Uh, there are, you know, that's the easy thing to do, right? There's a lot of people. I, I hear people say, well. I don't have time, I can't give you anything, but I can give you some money. Fine, UNICEF takes money. 50%, a little less than 50% of UNICEF's funding comes directly from the private sector. Foundations, uh, individual companies. Uh, Then companies also give things, whatever it is that they produce. Uh, Lego donates Legos to help with education projects. Um, We have a huge partnership going on right now with Microsoft to create a learning platform, where Microsoft and UNICEF are redesigning online curriculums uh, so to make them accessible around the world. That then has a knock-on effect. To have an online curriculum, you need better internet. So we're working, this is less of a give and more of a business negotiation, but working with the, the technology companies to provide greater online services in very remote areas. The majority of children in the world still do not have access to the internet at home, much as we think otherwise here. Um, and then, so there's there's direct contributions in that sense. My office, if anybody wants to help me develop digital analytics, I would I, I would be thrilled. Um, so it, there's lots of different lots of different levels. We actually have a division of UNICEF, based in Geneva, uh, which is set up specifically to work with the private sector and develop relationships with the private sector. And I'd encourage any of your listeners who are interested. Reach out; they can reach out to me, and I can put them in touch with our our uh, private fundraising arm.
1: Well, we you can go. use you just, all the help we can get. And you've just given us two great examples of, of global companies that are helping you already. So maybe we are seeing that 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 uptick. But as you said, in the, right at the start, Steve, you know, COVID also brings new challenges. And I think you said a billion and a half extra that you're you're in the market for now. So you know, it's 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 tough. to can for I you. give another example
2: too yeah. here because it's it's sometimes it's not just about giving. There, there is a There's an opportunity for co-creation, and we actually have a division that focuses on co-creation, where we will go to the private sector with a specific need. We'll say, we need this private sector. You create it, we'll buy it. Um, And we do it in a competitive fashion. We may have a couple of companies. The best example recently is is we determined that we needed a new generation of tents, literally tents. But we need tents that can withstand extreme cold in the north, extreme hot in in the desert, high winds and can house a school. That's where the school in the box is going. Uh, And so we wanted a new generation of tents. So we put this out to the world. Uh, We had a number of companies come back with a new design of tents. uh, And among them, we selected one, and we now have a new generation of tent that we're co-creating with a particular private firm. So there's opportunities here where I think um, you can do good, but at the same time, we can have different goals that come together with a single objective of helping kids.
1: Well, there you go. Tents, Lego blocks, um, technology, smart solutions, and just hard cash. You know, there's, as you say, where do you start? There's no end of, of ways in which, uh, in this new responsible business age, um, companies can help, can help you. And yourself. Well, Steve, we've come to the end of our time. I want to thank you for, for your time. Um, great work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thanks for your, for your time in, in setting out what, what the agenda and challenges are for you right now. So it's UNICEF, one of the most famous brands in the world running one of the most inspiring missions. But as we've been hearing, the cause of helping vulnerable children in highly challenging environments around the world doesn't come without its fair share of difficulties. Faced with prevalent risks of fraud and corruption in supply chains that are complex and opaque in nature, the principles of what UNICEF calls smart risk-taking are essential to how the agency operates. At the same time. It's turned to a new model for audit assurance in an increasingly digital age, in light of a COVID pandemic as well that has shattered global norms of physical meetings and cross-border travel. In all of this, UNICEF's experience mirrors that of most global businesses. They too are faced with the challenges of shoring up the transparency and integrity of global supply chains, and they too are becoming more dependent on technology in managing the risks involved. But there's another point of intersection, too. In an age of responsible business, major companies are lending their resources, or beginning to, at least, to UNICEF's cause. They do so because they see it's the right thing for society, and not least in this case, as we've heard from the examples Steve's given, for millions of young people who are most in need of assistance. But increasingly, perhaps some business leaders see it as the smart business choice as well to be proudly associated with a mission that is one of the most deserving and popular in the world. No bad can come out of doing that in the eyes of consumers and maybe the public at large. And it's another reminder of the power and purpose of responsible business.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Insights on Responsible Business. Hope you enjoyed it and that you'll tune into our next episode. Review us on Spotify, the iTunes podcast app, or whatever popular podcast app you're using and find out more on Deloitte.nl. We'll see you in our next episode.